Section 55 of Reviews by Oscar Wilde. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Reviews by Oscar Wilde. Edited by Robert Ross. Section 55. Mr. Mahaffey's New Book. Pall Mall Gazette, November ninth. 1887. Mr. Mahaffey's new book will be a great disappointment to everybody except the paper unionists and the members of the Primrose League. His subject, the history of Greek life and thought from the age of Alexander to the Roman conquest, is extremely interesting, but the manner in which the subject is treated is quite unworthy of a scholar. Nor can there be anything more depressing than Mr. Mahaffey's continual efforts to degrade history to the level of the ordinary political pamphlet of contemporary party warfare. There is, of course, no reason why Mr. Mahaffey should be called upon to express any sympathy with the aspirations of the old Greek cities for freedom and autonomy. The personal preferences of modern historians on these points are matters of no import whatsoever. But in his attempts to treat the Hellenic world as Tipperary writ large, to use Alexander the Great as a means of whitewashing Mr. Smith, and to finish the Battle of Caronia on the plains of Mitchelstown, Mr. Mahaffey shows an amount of political bias and literary blindness that is quite extraordinary. He might have made his book a work of solid and enduring interest, but he has chosen to give it a merely ephemeral value and to substitute for the scientific temper of the true historian, the prejudice, the flippancy, and the violence of the platform partisan. For the flippancy parallels can, no doubt, be found in some of Mr. Mahaffey's earlier books, but the prejudice and the violence are new, and their appearance is very much to be regretted. There is always something peculiarly impotent about the violence of a literary man. It seems to bear no reference to facts, for it is never kept in check by action. It is simply a question of adjectives and rhetoric, of exaggeration and over-emphasis. Mr. Balfour is very anxious that Mr. William O'Brien should wear prison clothes, sleep on a plank bed, and be subjected to other indignities. But Mr. Mahaffey goes far beyond such mild measures as these. But Mr. Mahaffey goes far beyond such mild measures as these, and begins his history by frankly expressing his regret that Demosthenes was not summarily put to death for his attempt to keep the spirit of patriotism alive among the citizens of Athens. Indeed, he has no patience with what he calls the foolish and senseless opposition to Macedonia, regards the revolt of the Spartans, against Alexander's Lord-Lieutenant for Greece, as an example of parochial politics, indulges in Primrose League platitudes against a low franchise, and the iniquity of allowing every pauper to have a vote, and tells us that the demagogues and pretend patriots were so lost to shame that they actually preached to the parasitic mob of Athens the doctrine of autonomy, not now extinct, Mr. Mahaffey adds regretfully. 
and propounded, as a principle of political economy, the curious idea that people should be allowed to manage their own affairs. As for the personal character of the despots, Mr. Mahaffey admits that if he had to judge by the accounts in the Greek historians, from Herodotus downwards, he would certainly have said that the ineffaceable passion for autonomy, which marks every epoch of Greek history, and every canton within its limits, must have arisen from the excesses committed by the officers of foreign potents, or local tyrants. But a careful study of the cartoons published in United Ireland has convinced him that a ruler may be the soberest, the most conscientious, the most considerate, and yet have terrible things said of him by mere political malcontents. In fact, since Mr. Balfour had been caricatured, Greek history must be entirely rewritten. This is the pass to which the distinguished professor of a distinguished university has been brought. Nor can anything equal Mr. Mahaffey's prejudice against the Greek patriots, unless it be his contempt for those few fine Romans who, sympathizing with Hellenic civilization and culture, recognize the political value of autonomy and the intellectual importance of a healthy national life. He mocks at what he calls their vulgar mawkishness about Greek liberties, their anxiety to redress historical wrongs, and congratulates his readers that the feeling was not intensified by the remorse that their own forefathers had been the oppressors. Luckily, says Mr. Mahaffey, the old Greeks had conquered Troy, and so the pangs of conscience, which now so deeply afflicted Gladstone and Amorley, for the sins of their ancestors, could hardly affect a Marcus or a Quinctus. It is quite unnecessary to comment on the silliness and bad taste of passages of this kind, but it is interesting to note that the facts of history are too strong even for Mr. Mahaffey. In spite of his sneers at the provinciality of national feelings, and his vague panegyrics on cosmopolitan culture, he is compelled to admit that, However patriotism may be superseded in stray individuals by large benevolence, bodies of men who abandon it will only replace it by meaner motives, and cannot help expressing his regret that the better classes among the Greek communities were so entirely devoid of public spirit that they squandered, as idle absentees or still idler residents, the time and means given them to benefit their country and failed to recognize their opportunity of founding a Hellenic federal empire. Even when he comes to deal with art, he cannot help admitting that the noblest sculpture of the time was that which expressed the spirit of the first great national struggle, the repulse of the Gallic hordes which overran Greece in 278 BC, and that to the patriotic feeling evoked at this crisis we owe the Belvedere Apollo, the Artemis of the Vatican, the dying Gaul, and the finest achievements of the Pergonine school. In literature also, Mr. Mahaffey is loud in his lamentations over what he considers to be the shallow society tendencies of the new comedy, and misses the fine freedom of Aristophanes, with his intense patriotism, his vital interest in politics, his large issues, 
and his delight in vigorous national life. He confesses the decay of oratory under the brightening influences of imperialism, and the sterility of those pedantic dispositions upon style which are the inevitable consequence of the lack of healthy subject matter. Indeed, on the last page of his history, Mr. Mahaffey makes a formal recantation of most of his political prejudices. He is still of opinion that Demosthenes should have been put to death for resisting the Macedonian invasion, but admits that the imperialism of Rome, which followed the imperialism of Alexander, produced incalculable mischief, beginning with intellectual decay and ending with financial ruin. The touch of Rome, he says, numbed Greece and Egypt, Syria and Asia Minor, and if there are great buildings attesting the splendour of the empire, where are the signs of intellectual and moral vigour, if we accept that stronghold of nationality, the little land of Palestine? This plain ode is, no doubt, intended to give a plausible air of fairness to the book, but such a deathbed repentance comes too late, and makes the whole preceding history seem not fair but foolish. It is a relief to turn to the few chapters that deal directly with the social life and thought of the Greeks. Here Mr. Mahaffey is very pleasant reading indeed. His account of the colleges at Athens and Alexandria, for instance, is extremely interesting. And so is his estimate of the schools of Zeno, of Epicurus, and of Pyro. Excellent, too, in many points, is the description of the literature and art of the period. We do not agree with Mr. Mahaffey in his panegyric of the Laocoon, and we are surprised to find a writer who is very indignant at what he considers to be the modern indifference to Alexandrian poetry, gravely stating that no study is more wearisome and profitless than that of the Greek anthology. The criticism of the new comedy also seems to us somewhat pedantic. The aim of social comedy, in Menander no less than in Sheridan, is to mirror the manners, not to reform the morals of its day, and the censure of the Puritan, whether real or affected, is always out of place in literary criticism, and shows a want of recognition of the essential distinction between art and life. After all, it is only the Philistine who thinks of blaming Jack Absolute for his deception, Bob Akers for his cowardice, and Charles Surface for his extravagance. And there is very little use in airing one's moral sense at the expense of one's artistic appreciation. Valuable also, though modernity of expression undoubtedly is, still it requires to be used with tact and judgment. There is no objection to Mr. Mahaffey's describing Philippomen as the Garibaldi, and Antigonus Dawson as the Victor Emmanuel of his age. Such comparisons have, no doubt, a certain cheap popular value. But, on the other hand, a phrase like Greek pre-Raphaelitism is rather awkward. Not much is gained by dragging in an allusion to Mr. Shorthouse's John Inglesant in a description of Argonautics of Apollonius Rhodius. And, when we are told that the superb pavilion erected in Alexandria by Ptolemy Philadelphus, 
was a sort of glorified Holborn restaurant, we must say that the elaborate description of the building given in Athenius could have been summed up in a better and a more intelligible epigram. On the whole, however, Mr. Mahaffey's book may have the effect of drawing attention to a very important and interesting period in the history of Hellenism. We can only regret that, just as he has spoiled his account of Greek politics by a foolish partisan bias, so he should have marred the value of some of his remarks on literature by a bias that is quite as unmeaning. It is uncouth and harsh to say that the superannuated schoolboy, who holds his fellowship and masterships at English colleges, knows nothing of the period in question, except what he reads in Theocritus, or that a man may be considered in England a distinguished Greek professor, who does not know a single date in Greek history between the death of Alexander and the battle of Sinocephale, and the statement that Lucian, Poltarch, and the four Gospels are excluded from English school and college studies, in consequence of the pedantry of pure scholars, as they are pleased to call themselves, is, of course, quite inaccurate. In fact, not merely does Mr. Mahaffey miss the spirit of the true historian, but he often seems entirely devoid of the temper of the true man of letters. He is clever, and at times even brilliant, but he lacks reasonableness, moderation, style, and charm. He seems to have no sense of literary proportion, and, as a rule, spoils his case by overstating it. With all his passion for imperialism, there is something about Mr. Mahaffey that is, if not parochial, at least provincial, and we cannot say that the last book of his will add anything to his reputation, either as an historian, a critic, or a man of taste. Greek Life and Thought from the Age of Alexander to the Roman Conquest by J. P. Mahaffey, Fellow of Trinity College, Dublin, Macmillan and Co. End of section 55. Mr. Mahaffey's new book.